the roundtable brought to you by the simple investor making the world of real estate investment simple the free-for-all roundtable round one on round one today christy blatchford is here from the national post jerry agar from the jerry agar show nine to noon liberal mpp ivan baker and brand expert tony chapman good to have you all sweet friday is here happy friday to you it's a sweet sweet friday. sweet, sweet friday all right well not so sweet if you are somewhere in the firing line between metrolinks and bombardier uh, let's set this thing up. We have Bombardier supposed to be providing not the vehicles right now, but the prototype so we can test it for the Eglinton Crosstown. It's two years overdue, and they still haven't delivered it. So now Metrolinx, late yesterday afternoon, early in the evening, we discovered here on News Talk 1010, basically told them, you know, we could terminate this. Here's uh, spokesperson Anne-Marie Aikens. We are up in Thunder Bay uh, doing a walk around this week to see if we're closer to having the pilot ready. And so we're continuing to work with Bombardier and hopeful that we can get things moving and to satisfy to our uh, to the the extent that we need to move forward with the pilot. And that's uh, that's the word from the official spokesperson, Jerry. I'm hearing they're serious about it. They're lawyered up, and they've got other suppliers that they could go to. Burn it down. The Crosstown or Bombardier? <laughs> Bombardier. Bombardier. Bombardier wants to be a proud Canadian company, act like a real company, and make it on your uh, business acumen, your ability to deliver on contracts, or don't make it at all. This is a welfare case supposedly masqueraded as a company. Tony Chapman, earlier this morning, Dan Cook was here, and he described the corporate welfare that Bombardier has collected in its many divisions, and it actually started as long ago as 1966, and they're still begging for money. Yeah, I mean, an essential service, part of the future new economy. This is a reco economy. It's so much good products and services that more often than not, we make our decisions based on what other people think about that brand or that product. And Barbara J in their home court has done nothing but fail to deliver. They've been publicly shamed. I have no idea how they could sell a car, a streetcar, anywhere in the world, given the way they've treated uh, Metrolinx. Is there a provincial role in all of this, Ivan uh, Baker? Well, absolutely. So Metrolinx is the provincial transit agency, right. and, and Metrolinx is responsible for, for overseeing the construction of not just the Eglinton Crosstown, but they, through the provincial government, are providing funding to a lot of the Toronto TTC transit projects as well. We're investing billions in transit. So what I think Metrolinx is doing sounds like a responsible move. They've This is a legal step, but it sounds like they're signaling to Bombardier, look, we're willing to cancel this contract, and we're willing to go to somebody else. Why and not just I'm, cancel it and move on now? Well, I think, I think you want... First of all, I think you, you probably want, I don't know the details of the contract, but I think what you probably want to do is you want to give Bombardier every chance to deliver We've on time and on budget. They've had two years. They're two but years you're, behind. But if, you're, but if you're Metrolinx, if you're Metrolinx, you want to know that, you're going to deliver, that they're going to deliver on time, the, 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 the on time and on budget, right, which is 2021, right? And so if I'm, I believe what Metrolinx is probably trying to do is make sure that determine whether Bombardier can deliver so that we can deliver on the 2021 deadline so those trains are running then, but but obviously exerting the appropriate legal measures so that if they have to move on to somebody else, they can and do it in time so they can deliver it by 2021 and on time and on budget. All right. Uh, let's do one other quick transit story, and uh, you can be the first to speak on this, uh, Christy Blatchford. I'm gonna play, oh, joy. I'm going to play the audio. Uh, as you may know, they put in a new turn for the streetcar, and it now goes into the distillery district, and residents in Corktown say it is, quote, unbearable. This is the sound of a streetcar going through the turn. All right. A bunch of whiners, or do you think they have a case? Well, I think they have a case, and I confess to a bit of a conflict of interest. Um, a couple of friends of mine live right there, 
and they are not whiny people and they are, you know, just ordinary good people. And this is playing hell with people's sleep. I mean, it's not a small thing. And noise, unless you've lived right next to it, can be really uh, torturous. It can. I once lived, as I've mentioned occasionally before, next to a Vietnamese karaoke cafe <laughs> where they played Anne Murray singing Snowbird, in v dubbed in Vietnamese, throughout the night on the jukebox. I want to hear that at least once. <laughs> no, you don't. Trust me. <laughs> Is this so, still going through your head, Kristen? Yeah, I'm afraid it is. Uh, and, and that's a loud, terrible noise. I don't know what they can do, but they have to do something. People can't sleep through that. Tony Christie makes an excellent point because I've had construction noise and, and things sometimes, and it, it starts to squeeze you like a vice after a while. I lived right on top on Queen Street East. My bedroom literally was on t I could have jumped on the top of a streetcar. They're so noisy, and the braking systems, and then every once in a while they break down, as we all know streetcars do, and buses take over, and all of a sudden you have this very quiet, calm way of getting people to work. Who is responsible for continuing to have streetcars as a form of transportation? Digging up the roads, repairing the roads, the noise and the sound. Well, they insist that once the new streetcars are running, they're going to be smoother because they're self-lubricating. Hey, the new jets into the airport would have been quieter than that if uh, Adam Vaughn and Justin Trudeau hadn't killed that. I don't know how you get from streetcars to the <laughs> island airport. Me either, but I admire it. I'm just thanks. talking about noise in the city, and uh, but, but trying to progress at the same time. All right. A uh, seven-year-old boy was assaulted by an older student, a 10-year-old, in a washroom at a Mississauga school. The 10-year-old pulled down his pants and made sexually suggestive remarks, which we don't need to repeat here. Um, so the principal of the school found out about it, told Child Services. Child Services investigated for five days and said there's nothing really here, so we're going to close the case. And that's when they contacted the mother. Uh, Yvonne Baker, I'll start with you. According to Ed Prucci, uh, our legal expert, they followed all the protocols, but he thinks the protocols are outrageous. He thinks the mother should have been told immediately. Yeah. I mean, first thing I thought when I heard this is I really felt for the mother, right? If I was a parent, I would want to know if this was happening um, or there were allegations that this was happening to my child. Um, but the other, on the other hand, I do know that the protocols and the rules are set up first and foremost to protect the safety and the health of the child. And so I think we'd want to get somebody on who's an expert in child protection to really understand whether indeed the rules are set up in this way uh, to keep information confidential for the safety or the health of the child, or if this was a situation where the protocols don't don't forbid the information to be shared with the parents, but some, some, somehow the protocol broke down or somebody didn't do what they How were supposed to. How could you not to. think a mother should be part of because the Because sometimes the mother or the father are the perpetrators of the sexual abuse. Well, not and, at school. No, no, uh, obviously not. And I don't know any more than you guys do what the precise protocols are. But I know that sometimes children's aid doesn't tell the family when the family is suspected. That clearly isn't the case here. But I don't know how long it takes them to sort it all out, you know. Uh, it, it's, a, it, it's a fraught field, that kind of social work, and nobody's been more critical over the years than I have. But I think we have to know a little bit more before we, we criticize it too much, you know. Uh, obviously, the mom in this case should have known, should have been told right away. I agree with what you're saying, Christy, but I think that for some and maybe too many people in the education system, as far as they're concerned, the only role parents has is to pump out more kids so they can have a system that continues. Yeah, but that doesn't apply to teachers and principals. Well, Honestly, you... Jerry, it doesn't. They, most 
No, most... no. Sometimes it does, Christy. They just you t- you try to be involved in the school. You try to you t- you try to do things inside the school. And if it if it's anything greater than carrying heavy boxes on behalf of the teacher, they would just rather you didn't exist. Jerry, bring it down to the humanity for a sec. Five days later, the mom firings out. What she have to do? She has to rip the wound open again and talk to the kid about what happened. Those five days should have been used for healing. What happened to that child? The parent has to be involved immediately in the solution. Unless, as Christy makes a point, if it happens at home, you think the parents are part of the abuse. This happened at school. The mom should have been called immediately. News Talk 1010 has learned there's going to be a protest at 1 o'clock tomorrow outside of a pet clinic, a veterinary clinic in Niagara. This is the clinic where the vet who was abusing animals worked, and he has announced he's going back into practice. Uh, Christy, I have to think this is one of the few times where the Internet will do the work where the College of Veterinarians didn't, because I cannot imagine as soon as anybody knows who this guy is that they're going to leave their dog or cat with him. Absolutely, I agree with you. Uh, I still don't like that kind of method of of regulation, as it were. I'd far rather the College of uh, Veterinarians had done its job, as you point out, they didn't. Um, it's shocking to me that this man will ever be allowed to to practice, you know, veterinary medicine. It's disgraceful. I mean, and I'm stunned that he uh, that he has the chutzpah to think that people might actually bring their animals to him. If I if I wasn't busy tomorrow, or if I find myself not busy tomorrow at one, I might go myself to the protest. Well, there are going to be lots of dogs there, so it's yeah. Worth well, there's going. always that upside. Yeah, <laughs> um, Ivan. I always say when uh, people judge people in the same profession, which is what lawyers do, doctors do, dentists do, veterinarians do. They're always going to be a a bit lenient. Is it time, perhaps, to take some of the power away from regulatory bodies like that and uh, give it to somebody who might actually have teeth? I don't know that that's the issue. I think we have regulatory bodies that involve... The regulatory bodies in Ontario typically involve people from that profession because you want people who are experts in that profession adjudicating on people in that profession, but you also want an objective view. I think that the issue here is that the College of Veterinarians, and I said this last time I was on your show when this, issue, when this news broke, that I really do think that, um, that the provincial government needs to look at the regulations that govern the College of Veterinarians and empower them to impose stiffer fines under situation like... Or stiffer penalties, I should say, under, under a situation like this. I just don't think this penalty is appropriate given what what he's done. How about but, common sense? you got a veterinarian that's, that's strangling animals. He shouldn't be allowed to practice. Exactly. But Ever, we, but, ever own an animal. Yeah, but we have the ongoing stories of these colleges. You've got doctors who I've found guilty of uh, physically uh, assaulting female patients, and the college says, oh, well, maybe we'll just let him practice as a doctor as long as he only has male patients. Like, uh, where's the common sense? Well, and you had somebody on your panel yesterday. I'm not sure if she brought it out on the panel, but we were talking after the show. She said that there was an investigation because uh, she went to veterinary college, and they found there were about 350 vets who have abused animals who have n- who, who are still practicing. Uh, that uh, it astounds me that a vet could ever abuse an animal, but that they get to continue to work is mind-boggling. Yeah, Why the pen- would they take the pen- ten years of education if they don't like animals? I don't understand the whole psychology of how does somebody in that profession not love animals? Yeah. They well, love money, I guess. Well. Uh, what do you make of a uh, couple in Kingston who have five kids and they're all named after Maple Leafs players? I uh, love it. Because, you do? <laughs> yeah, oddly, because the, the parents have thought it through and they're picking players they admire, not just superstars, but people who, hockey players who have shown some real understanding of team or whose grit they like. Like one of their children, I think, is named after Ty Domi. 
Um, so I kind of like it. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I think it's kind of cute. Okay, we didn't directly do this, but indirectly, uh, <laughs> let me let me explain. Okay, okay. A youth minister at a church we were going to had a son named Cooper, and my wife said that's a pretty good name, and it didn't hurt that I'm a big fan of Alice Cooper. So uh, I have a son named Cooper, and uh, when the name Nigel came up for my firstborn son, it didn't hurt that I'm also a fan of Elton John's drummer Nigel Olson. I think he's fantastic. So it was an affinity for the name that also that that came from the fact that there are entertainers. So I could see this. Yeah. I actually think it's, it's really, I think, healthy if, if when you name your children after someone that you want them to be aspire to be like. So Chris, you talked about the grid and the teamwork of some of the players. I mean, if you, if you read the article, the dad's talking about these characteristics that he wants his children to live up to. I think that's yeah. really, I think that's a positive thing, whether they're sports stars or not. I was named after my grandfather, who was a hardworking immigrant who came to Canada. It's the same thing. A blue-collar worker. Way. Gives me something to aspire to. And I think about that regularly. Five, I think that's a positive thing. named after Toronto Maple Leafs. Please. And hey, also, yeah, how, if it was John Beliveau, I'd be there. Yeah. How about if they moved to Montreal? They're going to be. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we drew the line the on Ringo. Rouge is not going to accept five kids coming to that high school named after me, please. Uh, let me, because people are probably curious, tell you the names. There's Justice Tucker after Darcy Tucker, Angel McCabe after Brian McCabe, Domi after Ty Domi, and Colton. Uh, Colton Orr, I might add. And so. Kadri, the baby. And Kadri, baby Kadri. Yeah. It what was happened? a girl. What happened to big Bobby Clobber? I don't know. <laughs> it's 8 o'clock.